The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's word. And we will have a few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege we have to gather together to study your word, that it is your word that challenges us with the way things are. And is your word that puts a spotlight on our thinking and on our own lives, and we have to have the courage and the objectivity to allow that spotlight to reveal uh, what it needs to and to look at it honestly and openly and be willing to change and be transformed that we might glorify you through our advance to spiritual maturity. As we conclude our study on the spiritual life this evening, we pray that you would just challenge us with these things that we have learned that we might be uh, pushing forward to the high ground of spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and we're going to wrap up with our study this evening in the doctrine of inheritance, and then we're going to press on through about the next seven or eight verses to wrap up this particular study. When I get back from Kazakhstan... We will start a whole new study on doctrines and I mean on dispensations and biblical covenants. So this is going to conclude the uh, basic. This is sort of a basic course on the spiritual life. We've gone through the doctrine of inheritance because inheritance is the subject of Romans 8:17, where we read, "And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed." We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And we saw that this is not punctuated correctly in most English translations, where it makes it look as if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are synonyms, when in fact they are two different categories of inheritance. If they are synonyms, the problem is the conditional clause would then make inheritance, being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, which is equivalent to salvation, uh, conditioned upon suffering with Christ. And if that's a condition for salvation... And salvation isn't by faith alone, it's by faith plus suffering. And that is not what the gospel says. So we therefore know that this is speaking about something in addition to salvation. Heirs of God is for every believer. Fellow heirs with Christ is only for those who are advancing towards spiritual maturity. Now, so far we've covered about eight points, or excuse me, nine points on the doctrine of inheritance. And rather than take the time to review those, we will just begin with the tenth point, which we began with some last time, a bit of a review. The problem that we are faced with in understanding the inheritance passages 
is the there are passages which speak of inheritance, passages which speak of his inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone in Christ alone. Passages such as Galatians 3.29, Galatians 4.1, 1 Peter 1.4 and 5, and Titus 3.7. But there are also passages which speak of his speak of inheritance as an acquisition or a reward to the believer. And if inheritance means eternity in heaven, then there are some people that can never be saved, and others will lose their salvation. We see this problem in a passage like Ephesians 5.5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, if inheriting the kingdom of God is equivalent to entering into heaven, then you can't enter into heaven if you are immoral, impure, and therefore, why even address the gospel to those people? They can't be saved by definition. Colossians 3.24 states, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So their reward, inheritance is spoken of as a reward to the believer, not part of the package that you get at salvation. So obviously the scriptures talk about different categories of inheritance, and this is point 11, that there are two categories of inheritance, inheriting the kingdom, spoken of in Ephesians 5, 5, as well as 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and inheriting salvation, which is for every believer, Hebrews 1, 14. Now, point number 12 is that just as Jesus Christ inherits the kingdom due to his loyalty to God, so will every believer who is a joint heir with Christ. Just as Christ inherits the kingdom as a result of his loyalty and his obedience to God the Father, according to Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, so will joint heirs with Christ. It is an additional reward given to believers on the basis of their spiritual growth and their advance to uh, spiritual maturity. The concept of inheritance, as I stated last time, really goes back to the Old Testament concept of inheritance, which, is, which has the meaning of possession. That God has given you something that is yours, and yet you have to go out and conquer it. This was the concept with the twelve tribes of Israel when they went into the land. God had given them the land. God had given the Exodus generation the land, but when they sent out the twelve spies, the twelve spies came back and said, well, there are walled cities, there are giants in the land, and the people are numerous as grasshoppers. How in the world can we conquer them? Well, ten of the twelve spies misunderstood the order. The operations order for the recon mission was to determine how we're going to conquer the land, not if we're going to conquer the land. God had already said, go spy out the land I have given to you. So it's already there. By misunderstanding the mission, they came back and they said, well, we can't do it. And except for two, Caleb and Joshua, and they said, well, we can do it. Let's just trust the Lord and let's go get them. So God disciplined the nation and no one ever entered into the, into their, the possession of their inheritance. It was theirs. They were still in Israel. It was still theirs uh, contingently, but they never realized it actually because of their disobedience. Then you skip the generation, you come to the jo- uh, Joshua generation that goes in in the conquest, and we saw that they did take position, possession of the land, and they did benefit from it. But then the next generation that we studied in Judges chapter 2 does not trust God. They forgot what God had done for their fathers, 
and they, their territory was reduced. They went through discipline, and their possessions were reduced, and they lost ground. And the same thing is true for the believer. The believer who advances to spiritual maturity has possession of his inheritance. But if you do not advance to spiritual maturity, you don't possess your inheritance. You're still saved, you're still a child of God, you're still in the family of God, but you don't have an inheritance which is your reward. Rewards in position of responsibility, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in the eternal messianic, or in the messianic kingdom and then in eternity. And then we came to point number 13. We reviewed this before. The diff- there's a difference between living in the kingdom and reigning with Christ. And this is seen in a problem passage in 2 Timothy 2.11 through 13, which some folks think it means that you can lose your salvation. But what this means is that uh, it's quite different. The first verse, verse 11, states it is a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, first class condition, and we did, that's positional truth at the instant of salvation, we're identified with Jesus Christ. We've studied that in detail in Romans 6, 1 through 5. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. So if you died with Him, that happened positionally at the instant of salvation. Therefore, you will live with Him. You will live in the kingdom. You will live forever and have eternal life. If we endure, that is secondary. That's not believing. There's a difference between enduring, uh, hupomone, and which is persistence, and believing in Christ. Persistence has to do with how well you're obedient, how consistent you are in advancing your spiritual maturity. If you endure, you will reign. That's the reward. It is reigning with Christ. But in contrast, if we deny Him, we being believers, notice He is talking about believers, if we deny Him, this is not a rejection of Christ at the, at the cross, this is if we deny Him in our lives, and this is the person, the believer who goes out and lives like an unbeliever, could care less about doctrine, goes to church, maybe occasionally and eventually not at all. The nod to God crowd, they show up and give their little token nod to God Christmas, Easter, every other year. If we deny Him, then He will deny us. What does He deny us? Salvation? No. That's contradicted by the next verse. He denies us rewards. We can't reign and rule with Him in the Messianic Kingdom. We will live, but we won't rule and reign. 2 Timothy 2.13 then says, if we are faithless, that's the person who denies. He is faithless. He does not advance through the faith rest drill to spiritual maturity. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, God never changes. His salvation was never based on our faithfulness or faithlessness at all. It's based exclusively on what he did on the cross. So even when we fail, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Salvation is based on the character of Christ and the character of God the Father. It is not ever based on our character, either our successes or our failures, but it does affect our position in eternity. So there is, point number 13, there is a difference between living in the kingdom and reigning with Christ. Point number 14, thus the kingdom has been promised to those who love God and not all believers love God. It takes doctrine in the soul to love God. You can't love someone you don't know. And if you don't know anything about God except your own emotional feelings, and a lot of people are impressed by the feelings that are, that are generated when they start thinking about lofty things such as God, and then they're impressed by their own feelings and they think that God must also be impressed by those feelings, and so they think they're spiritual. But they don't love God because they don't know God because there's no content of doctrine in their soul they have never grappled with the Scriptures as we have, gotten into things like the doctrine of the Trinity, 
to understand the relationships of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't understand hypostatic union. They don't understand the, the uh, fact that the, the Son is eternally begotten. They don't understand about the Holy Spirit, that He proceeds from the Father and the Son. They think that's just academic uh, mumbo-jumbo and has nothing to do with the relationship with God. But that's probably why they're having trouble in their marriages and their relationships because they don't know that, that love is based on knowledge and they don't know their people in their lives either and they just operate on their own emotion and their own self-absorption. So the kingdom has been promised to those who love God and we have seen in our study of John 15 that those who love God keep my commandments. So you have to know the commandments of Scripture. You have to know the mandates and the prohibitions of Scripture in order to obey them to demonstrate that you have love. Love is not just feelings. Love is demonstrated by actions, by, by mental attitude actions, as well as overt actions. So those who love God are those who keep His commandments, and not all believers love God. Love for God is expressed through obedience to God, John 14, 21 through 24. The illustration comes from the Old Testament example of Esau. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first. They were, so therefore, he was the firstborn chronologically, and he was to receive the double portion of the inheritance. But he sold his birthright. He sold it for a mess of pottage, for a lentil soup, which was more important to him than his own uh, inheritance and birthright, which had spiritual significance. So therefore, he was no longer the prototokos, the firstborn. Jacob became the firstborn. Hebrews 12:16 says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. See, that's what many believers are like. They don't realize this tremendous inheritance that we have set aside and reserved for us in heaven, that it's imperishable and it cannot be defiled, and yet they just treat it lightly and they live their life as if God doesn't matter, I'm saved, Christ died for my sins, so I'll just do whatever I want to do. It really doesn't matter as long as I'm going to be in heaven. Well, that is acting like Esau. It's acting like a godless person who treats the birthright lightly as if it has no significance. Hebrews 12:17 says, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. In other words, now he has remorse. He is truly upset. But there are situations in life that once you perform certain actions... Once you have characterized yourself a certain way, you do indeed sacrifice or give up or forfeit aspects of our inheritance. That's true for every one of us. And when we get to heaven, we will see those displayed in heaven and it will be a testimony to lost opportunity in our lives because we treated our inheritance lightly. This is based on the events in Genesis 27, 38 through 40. Esau said to his father, "'Do you have only one blessing, my father?' Bless me also. He has already lost it. Isaac has already given the blessing to, to Jacob. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He has true remorse. He's not only sorry he lost it. I think he has, uh, he, he's sorry. It's not just sorry he got caught, but he's, he's truly sorry he sold his birthright. But it's too late. Isaac, his father, answered in verse 39, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven above, which is the place where there would be blessing and agricultural prosperity. Verse 40, And by your sword you shall live. In other words, there will be violence in your life. And your brother you shall serve. Now, he is the firstborn. 
Your brother you shall serve, but it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. In other words, you will eventually separate yourself from the Jews. So Esau loses inheritance blessing, the double portion of the firstborn, but not his position as Isaac's son. He is still Isaac's son. He still will receive some level of inheritance because just because the firstborn received a double portion doesn't mean that the others received nothing. But Isaac gets the real inheritance. The, the inheritance that Esau gets is secondary and insignificant spiritually. And we need to then ask the question, so how can a believer follow in the path of Esau? Very simple. You do it through continuous carnality and through failure to advance to spiritual maturity, to advance in the spiritual life and the development of production righteousness, Hebrews 12, 11. If we fail to advance to spiritual maturity, then we will forfeit those blessings. That is why when you get into passages like John 15, and we studied the vine analogy there, we don't have time to go through it now, it is only the, the maturing plant, which is analogous to the believer's life, that produces three categories of fruit. Fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Much, and, it, and then God says, or Jesus says in that passage, that the, it is when you bear much fruit that the Father is glorified. Not fruit... Not by bearing fruit that the Father is glorified. Not by bearing more fruit, but by bearing much fruit is the Father glorified. So the Father is glorified when the believer advances to full spiritual maturity. And that's where the fun begins. You remember that when you were a kid? Remember when you were 9, 10 years old? You said, man, I can't wait till I'm an adult because that's when the real action is. But most believers want to waddle around in their, in their dirty carnal diapers and stay in the spiritual nursery and never get out and just wallow in their emotions impressed with their own self-absorption thinking it's spirituality. And they never have a vision for saying, hey, I want to be a spiritual adult because that's when life really begins. That's when the abundant life begins and that's what I want. And that's what I am challenging you with in this whole study is to advance to that point. Now, there is a warning in many places in Scripture and one is given in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. To the carnal Corinthians, you must remember that Paul is talking to a bunch of believers in Corinth that are about as licentious, immoral, screwed up, angry. They're, they're, they're committing all kinds of uh, sacrifices in the, in the temple. They're still uh, in the pagan temples. They're still, com- some of them, committing incest. They're involved in temple prostitution. They're getting involved in the mysticism of the uh, fertility cults and speaking in glossolalic utterances and claiming its tongues and aren't we more superior than everybody else? The women are running the church and speaking out. There's uh, all kinds of problems where the, where the uh, wives are asserting their authority over the, over the men and the men are just turning into passive lambs and letting the women walk all over them in their marriages and that has to be straightened out. And there's all kinds of problems. There, there, there's arrogance there. there. I'm for, I was baptized by... by uh, Apollos, and I was baptized by Cephas, and everybody's making an issue out of the personality of different teachers that have come along rather than focusing on Christ, and of course then you had those who are analogous to the, to the holiness bunch, and they're all, always the bunch that sits back and says, yes, but I am of Christ. And that's better than those of you who are from Peter and Apollos. So there's always that pious bunch that really don't have a clue either. So they're divided, and they're involved in all kinds of, of 
overt sins. And so Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, that is the wrongdoers, Atticus, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, and here he defines what unrighteous is. It's carnality, it's sin. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. See, that's not politically correct today. But the Bible makes it clear that homosexuals are in the same class as as adulterers and fornicators and thieves and those who are covetous. That just means you're greedy. That means you're materialistic. You want more things and you're putting your happiness in the things, in money and the things money can buy. Nor drunkards, that's alcoholics. Nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That covers just about everybody. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not saved. We've already seen that inherit the kingdom of God is not a synonym for entering into heaven. If it is, then you can't have a prison ministry or a jail ministry because those people would be automatically excluded from, uh, from entering into the kingdom. In fact, you couldn't have much of an evangelism ministry at all in our society because uh, so many of the people out there are already fornicators, adulterers, and homosexuals. So uh, if that's true, then just fold up the tent and let's go home. So, unfortunately, most evangelicals don't think about things as practical as that, and they get caught up in a lot of legalism. Verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you. Now, it's important here to understand what he's talking about. The some of you means that the you is plural. Some of you all. So, here's the you all. That's the congregation. Some of you used to be this way. So, there's a small segment here, the sum, this is the you all, we'll just put it this way, y'all, the y'all are saved, the sum are no longer operating on carnality, but this is a minority, now let's go back and keep that in mind, such were Some of you, some of you were idolaters and effeminate and homosexual. Some of you all, you all are believers. That's who he's addressing throughout this epistle, the you all are believers. But you all, he's still got a second person plural here. You all addresses not the some, but the you all. The circle here. This is the y'all. You all were washed. So the, the whole congregation he's addressing are washed. That means they were saved. That's identical with uh, cleansing of regeneration, Titus 3, five. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. You all were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Y'all, all, all the way through it, second person plurals. Y'all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. But it's only the some that have had any level of sanctification and spiritual growth the rest of them are all still committing all of that host of sins. And so he's warning them that if you don't get with the Word and start using 1 John 1, 9 so that you can advance, see, that's God's grace procedure. No matter how much you've screwed up, if you're still alive, God still has a plan for your life and you can go forward. So you use 1 John 1, 9. That doesn't start you growing. It just puts you in a position where you can grow. And then you have to get into the Word. And the more screwed up you've gotten, the more carnality you've got in your life, the more uh, relativistic your standards have become, the more intense your Bible study ought to be. Some of you need to be spending about eight hours a day just listening to tapes because that's the only thing that keeps anything positive in your, in your thinking. 
The rest of it's just garbage. So you need to retrain your mind and just get almost brainwashed by the Word of God. Now we come back to Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed you suffer with Him. Now there's a purpose for the suffering, and that's given in a Hena clause that stresses the purpose here for the suffering. It's not just some sort of masochistic suffering. We're not out there just to suffer for suffering's sake. Suffer in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, the word translated suffering here, suffering together with Christ, is the Greek word sumpaskamen. Sumpaskamen is a present active indicative, first person plural, from the verb sumpasko. Now, sum is the is uh, uh, the, the uh, prefix or preposition sum, which means with or together with, and pasco is the verb for suffering. It's related to paschal. It's uh, uh, frequently used in passages to describe the intense suffering that Christ went through on the cross when he died as a substitute for our sins. But it's not restricted to atonement suffering. Now, we need to ask the question, how do we suffer with Christ. Well, there are two different ways in which the believer can suffer with Christ. First of all, we talk about Christ suffering on the cross, and almost every commentator that comes along automatically jumps on Pasco and says, well, that's the cross suffering, so that's how we interpret it. Well, that's idiotic, and it's wrong. It shows that they can't think past the end of their nose. You see, you can't suffer with Christ in His atoning sufferings. We don't do anything to help Christ die on the cross for our sins. And the word pasco is also etymologically related to the other word used for suffering in this passage. And they both come from the same root, which in Greek has a, has a pi and an alpha, and it's pathemata. And they have the same root, and so they're talking about, uh, they can be used in non-technical ways, not just talking about what happened on the cross. And so the second way in which Christ suffered was in his, during his life, living in the devil's world, without a sin nature, undergoing testing and temptation and adversity day in and day out, in his humanity, he still had to advance to spiritual maturity. He had to learn things, and that's what Hebrews 5.8 says, and incidentally, it uses Pasco for the word suffered here. Although he was a son, that is, deity, although he was deity, he learned obedience in his humanity from the things which he suffered, Pasco. And there it is the aorist active indicative third person singular of Pasco, indicating that Jesus pioneered for us the spiritual life by persevering in learning doctrine and walking consistently in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Day in and day out, he faced situations where he had to make, had to make a choice as to whether to react by, by sinning or whether to respond by doing what God said to do. And you know, most of us, we think of testing as the big things in life, that, that we... Uh, we lose our job, or we come home and, and we find that our spouse has left us, or, or perhaps a close friend dies, or a child dies, or a parent dies, or we're the victim of a heinous crime. That's what we think of as testing. But see, the real tests in life are not that exciting. The real tests of life occur when you're driving down the highway, and somebody cuts you off, and you decide whether or not you're going to respond in anger and salute them, or whether you're just going to say... Uh, Something like, uh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying your day. I'm going to trust the Lord and not get angry. 
And that's a test, and you decide whether or not you're going to apply doctrine or try to handle the problem through your own sin nature. Or when you're a husband and you have something you want to do and your wife wants you to do something and you realize you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and so you are going to give up what you want so that you can do something that encourages her. It happens when you're a wife and you know you can win the argument, but you know you need to submit to his leadership, so you say, uh, yes, honey, I'll do what you want to do. And we'll follow that path. Because, see, that's what Scripture says, how we're to respond. Those are the tests of life. Day in, day out, we continuously have to face those things. And the husband who is inconsiderate of what's going on with his wife's life can't be loving her as Christ loved the church. And the wife who's always challenging his authority and not being submissive, well, she can't ever advance to spiritual maturity because you're not learning obedience from the things you suffer. You're just suffering. And you have to learn something. You have, and the only way you learn obedience when you're going through those little tests is by being obedient. It's by doing what the Word says to do. Not by saying, oh yeah, well, I'll just confess that sin and move on. Well, that, all you're going to end up doing is bouncing in and out of the right circle there by being carnal one minute and spiritual the next. But you're not going to go anywhere. And you only go somewhere by obedience. So, Jesus did this by developing all of the spiritual skills. Now, we define skill as a proficiency, an adeptness, or a dexterity, which is acquired or developed through training or experience. Now, proficiency, adeptness, or dexterity means that you become proficient at doing this. Whatever the skill is, you become proficient. It becomes second nature to you. That's, you're adept at it. It, it, becomes, it looks to other people as if it's a talent. It's dexterity. That means you're, 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 with your hands, if you have dexterity, then you're, you're nimble and that you can do a lot and it's, you're very quick. And so this is the person who instantly res, re, responds to a situation with one of the problem-solving devices, one of the stress busters. That's why they're called spiritual skills and you have to practice them like any skill in life, whether it's piano, whether it's singing, whether it's uh, uh, any kind of skill in carpentry, whether it's working with something on the computer, you have to practice it over and over and over again. And just remember, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. If you practice making the same mistake over and over and over again, then all you're going to do is perfect imperfection. And that's what a lot of Christians are doing because they just keep thinking that all I have to do to advance is just keep confessing the sin without ever advancing into obedience in the arena where they keep sinning. So Jesus developed these as skills. He practiced them over and over and over again. And he follows the stair step of every single believer. He started off in spiritual childhood. This is called technon in the Greek. The initial stress buster is confession. Admitting or acknowledging our sins to God the Father because that puts us back in fellowship where we're filled with the Spirit and where we're abiding in Christ so that we can have... Uh, divine power to advance in the spiritual life. The second stress buster is the filling of the Holy Spirit or walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.16. Then we have the faith rest drill in 1 Peter 1.3 and 4, which shows that we are advanced by the promises that God gave us. You have to mix faith with the promises of God. If you don't know any promises, you can't mix faith with it. If you don't know any promises then you're never going to advance beyond the first two blocks, and that's why most Christians can't ever go anywhere, because they can't list on one finger the promises that they know from memory. 
So when you get in a problem, all you go is, I think it says in the Bible somewhere that I ought to do something, what's that word? Uh, and they don't, can't claim a promise because they don't know it. The fourth stress buster is grace orientation. And we have to understand grace orientation or you'll never understand impersonal love or personal love. And if you don't understand grace, then your love will always be tainted with conditions and legalism and you'll have screwy relationships and you'll end up a failure in marriage. Even if you stay together most of your life, you'll probably be miserable or your spouse will. Then there's doctrinal orientation where you align your thinking to the absolutes of God's Word. That Second Peter 3.18 goes for both of those where we're told to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the big transition in spiritual adolescence called young men in 1 John 2.13, neoniskoi in the Greek. And this is the personal sense of our eternal destiny. And that's what we're talking about in inheritance. That's our destiny. When you get to a point where you realize there is an eternal destiny that is more incredible than anything you'll ever face in life, that's going to start motivating you. See, you know how teenagers are, those of you who were one, or those of you who have one. You know that they don't think beyond tomorrow or at best the next day. They're very short-sighted. And as you get to maturity, you begin to realize that there are other things in life, and you begin to plan and have, you're able to postpone gratification for a year or two, save money for that vacation or that investment or buying a house, and you begin to think beyond tomorrow so that things 2, 3, 4, 10, 20, 30 years down the road begin to motivate you. And that's what happens in spiritual adolescence. You begin to be motivated not by what's happening today, not just so I can go to Bible class and go home and find something to apply this afternoon, but so that I can be prepared for eternity so I'll have a capacity to enjoy it when I get there and not be like the failures who end up in heaven and go, where am I? Oh, is this heaven? Maybe I should have been in Bible class more often and I'd know how to act. Third level of spiritual growth is spiritual adulthood. Huioi, adult sons in our passages, where Paul makes a difference between children, technon, and adult sons, huios. These advanced problem-solving devices are spiritual skills or personal love for God, Romans 5.5, impersonal love for all mankind, Galatians 5.14, and occupation with Christ. I link these together as the uh, love triplex, they, they relate to one another and we build them uh, incrementally as we advance spiritually. And the final stress buster is uh, sharing the happiness of God or plus H in James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will lead to maturity. And only then can we bear much fruit and have the maximum glorification of God. So that is why we move on spiritual skills. Now, that's the importance. That's why we suffer with Jesus Christ. We go through... This isn't big suffering. This isn't the kind of martyrdom that you might envision. This isn't uh, going down to, uh, to live somewhere where nobody's a believer so you can always be ridiculed. This isn't some sort of asceticism that I'm going to give up everything for Jesus and go live out in the wilderness like a monk. There was one called uh, Bosco who lived out in the wilderness and ate grass for years. I wonder if they got Bosco the cow from that. Uh, back in the 4th century A.D., one of the early monks in the whole rise of monasticism 
in the early church was one of the most tragic chapters in Christianity because they tried to impress people and God with how spiritual they were by what they suffered. And this isn't what this is talking about. Notice how there is a shift in the next verse. In the next verse, the point is in sanctification. The goal of sanctification. The chart on the overhead illustrates for us that when we are using all of those stress busters, we are inside the divine fortification and that protects us from all uh, adversity so that it's not converted into stress in the soul. Now, verse 18 states, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, when he says the word sufferings here, he uses the Greek word pathemata. And that is another form, comes from the same etymological root as pasco. Uh, that we saw in the previous verse. And so when he says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings, pathemata, and he just talked about suffering in 17, he links the two. So that shows that, that those who say that the suffering in verse 17 is, is identified with Christ on the cross, this shows the error of that position. For Paul is not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking about the day-to-day adversities and choices that we face as believers. And here he's pointing out in the next few verses that what motivates us is the future, is phase three glorification. When you understand what that's all about, that is what turns around and kicks you in the rear to motivate you. One of the things that I have noticed in my own life over the years is that uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I reached a point when I was going to church and going to Bible class that I was no longer going to class to learn something new. For years I was motivated by questions. What about this? How do you understand that passage? What about this? How does that work? What's going to happen eschatologically? How can I better argue for the gospel? And I finally reached a point where most of my questions were answered clearly to my satisfaction. And I could not, I'd moved back to Houston in 91, and I could not, I'd went to several Bible churches, and uh, most of them, I was about three steps ahead of them when they were teaching. And so they didn't say anything that was either A, interesting, or B, informative. And when I ended up going back to Baraka, one of the reasons I went back was that when Pastor Thien was teaching, I was learning some things, but he was at least challenging my thinking. But I noticed soon after that, I began to realize, you know, I'm not really learning all that much. I know all this. I'm here not to learn I'm here to be reminded and encouraged to continue to put into practice what I hear every night. My motivation, see, the motivation of a young believer is usually I want to learn more. I want to understand the Bible. I want to understand the, why this is true and how this is true and how the dispensations work and what's going to happen in the future and all those kinds of questions. But when you get past that, what happens 80% of the time is when a Believer gets to the point where their questions are satisfied, you quit seeing them in Bible class. I'm satisfied. My questions are answered. I know it all. I can answer those questions. So they, they're no longer there. Because what happens is, at the end of spiritual childhood, as you're entering into spiritual adolescence, your motivation has to shift. Your motivation is no longer, how do I learn what to do? The motivation now is loving God so that I can advance to spiritual maturity. And that's a hard transition for people to make, and most Christians don't do it. They never quite grasp the fact that they have an inheritance that's at stake 
and that only by advancing to spiritual maturity can they ever begin to, to, to uh, or ever hope to uh, glorify God. So this is why phase three, we studied phase one justification. It's a moment in time when you trust Christ alone for your salvation. Phase two is the spiritual life advancing uh, from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood when you apply the Word and you're freed from the power of sin to phase three, ultimate sanctification called glorification when we're freed from the presence of sin. We've looked at this chart, phase one salvation. Then there's the phase two flow chart. You have your operation of uh, your volition right here. You have a test. Any test, a test is any opportunity to either apply doctrine or not apply doctrine. Your volition comes into play and you either respond positively and apply doctrine, which moves you into production of divine good. You start experiencing the abundant life and your life produces the evidence that God's will is good, perfect, uh, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This in turn produces steadfast endurance and leads to the adult spiritual life. And this is a cycle energized by walking by means of the Spirit. Or you can be negative. That leads to sin, human good, and temporal death. And further, as that increases, to weakness and instability, to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And then you're like the Israelites and the judges. You're, you're sunk knee-deep in reversionism and, you just, and it just gets worse. So that, that continues. And then phase three, you are in uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll either receive rewards and inheritance or loss of rewards and temporary shame. That is the overall view. Now, Paul says in Romans 8.18, Romans 8, For I consider, and this is the present active indicative of logizomai, which means he's thinking. He's not emoting. He's not feeling. He's meditating. Logizomai means to think, to reason, to contemplate, or to meditate. This means he's stopping, he's distractions, and he's focusing on doctrine for a little while and say, you know, when I start really thinking about all of this, now I begin to realize that all this little petty uh, uh, suffering that I'm going through and these little, little problems that I have are just nothing when I compare this to the glory that's to be revealed. When I compare this to phase three glorification, all of this, these little problems I'm going through are nothing by comparison. In fact, they're tremendous because these are what advanced me to spiritual maturity, so therefore I can, I can uh, really glory in them and have joy. I consider the sufferings of this present time, that is, in this church age, in this life, phase two, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be re- revealed to us. Now, this, the, the sufferings that he's talking about I mentioned already is the word pathemata, and according to the Lonida lexicon, this means to experience strong physical desire. See, that's what I'm talking about. It's not some big adversity that comes along, but it's what's going on in the turmoil of our soul, making the choice between applying doctrine or not applying doctrine. Pathemata has the idea of experiencing strong physical desires, particularly of a sexual nature. It can also mean passion, lust, lustful desire, it also means just to, to suffer uh, in a broader sense. And interestingly enough, it's the word Paul uses in Romans 7, 5, where he states, For while we were in the flesh, that is, as an unbeliever, the sinful passions, and that's the word, pathemata, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But it's also used to refi- describe different kinds of suffering in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through seven states, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also 
our comfort is abundant through Christ. So there it's not the sufferings of the cross, but the adversity Christ faced as he advanced to spiritual maturity. But if we were afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharings, uh, sharers of our comfort. Galatians 5.24 states, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. And then Hebrews 2.10, for Dan's benefit, to get him ready for next week, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, notice phase three is the motivation, to perfect, that is to bring to maturity, the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus Christ was brought to spiritual maturity by going through adversity. For since he himself was tempted in that, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is phase two suffering. This is not the cross suffering. This is what he went through in life to prepare him to be our great high priest. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, let's go on to verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation. See, the suffering is not just related to man. It's related to the whole creation which suffers as a result of the fall. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice, not technon, children of God, but the sons of God, those who are heirs, those who are going to rule and reign with Christ. In Hebrews, that's the metakoi, the partakers with Christ. And it is these that will be revealed with Christ when He returns at the second coming. At the second advent, He's going to... and the creation is going to have the curse reversed. Paul reminds us in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to matayotes, that is, futility or emptiness, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. That is, Christ, God the Father, subjected it in judgment because of man's sin. Man's sin didn't just affect man. It affected everything in the entire universe and everything changed. Just think about the the, uh, animals that were all created gramnivorous. They were all herbivores. That means they just ate grass and leaves. And yet, when Adam fell, their uh, bodies began to change. Their digestive system had to change. Their dental structure had to change. Their jaw structure had to change so that they could eat meat. So, we see that that even the, the physical function of the animals in the animal kingdom went through a metamorphosis, not evolution. It, they were still... If they were dinosaurs before, they were dinosaurs after. If they were lions before, they were lions after. But... They went through that kind of a shift. We'll see it again in the millennium because animals will not be carnivorous. Uh, snakes will not be venomous. The child will be able to put his hand into a cobra's den and, will lie, and the lamb will lie down with the lion because lions will be ramnivorous again. And we'll see that they will have teeth like a deer or like a sheep and not the large pointy teeth that are designed to drag and tear and rip up meat. So there will be a change. A reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 21, this is described as being set free, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption uh, into the freedom of the, of the glory of the children of God. So because there is, and here it's children of God indicating the entire body that returns with Christ, but it is the sons of God, their revelation, which occurs at the judgment seat of Christ, 
those are the ones that return to rule and reign with Christ. But the glory of the children of God indicates the glory that belongs to every single believer as a result of their salvation. And then verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together with together the pains of childbirth together until now. So that's what's going on throughout uh, all of human history. That's why we see periods of cold, periods of warmth. Global warming isn't anything new. About a thousand years ago when the Vikings were going out in their explorations, Greenland was green. It was a time of tremendous warmth. There were tall trees and grasses all over Greenland, all over the north, because there was global warming. And I guess that was due to the fact that the Vikings had all those internal combustion engines and they just had all those aerosol deodorant cans and uh, really messed up the ozone. It's just that the earth goes through these cycles. And these are the result of sin, not particular sins, but sin in principle. And so the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 23, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's all focused on phase three. Because of that, we are to be motivated today to advance into the spiritual life. So we are to go forward. Now, I want to review just to wrap all this up, make sure we understand everything we've learned in Romans 6 through 8. We have to go back to the basic principle we started with over in Romans chapter 6, which is the issue of positional sanctification. The issue of positional sanctification. Give me a minute to get the right slide up here. There we go. We have eternal realities and temporal realities. The eternal realities relate to our position in Christ as a result of our identification with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. We are placed in Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. We have about 40 different things given to us that are our eternal possessions. We are reconciled with Christ. We are redeemed. We're bought with a price so that we are not ours, but we belong to the Lord. We are regenerated. We have a we're adopted into the family of God. We are a new creation. We are freed from the power of the sin nature. And we have a new life in Christ. We're sealed by the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit. But that has to do with eternal realities that never change. But we have positional realities. We are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit when we are walking in the light. The sphere represents walking in the light, which is energized by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. But whenever we sin... We are out of fellowship, in carnality, operating by, on the sin nature, and the only way to get out of the walking in darkness pattern is to use 1 John 1.9 and to get back in fellowship. That is the whole act of sanctification. And that, then, is where we learn doctrine so we can advance. Why do we advance? Because we understand the principle of hope that is given in verses 24 and 25. For in hope, this is an instrumental dative, for by means of hope, we have been saved. This is not phase one salvation. This is phase two salvation delivered from the presence of sin. We've studied sozo and that it depends on the context what saved means. Not just saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification, but saved from the power of sin. But hope that is elpis, confident expectation. Hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope, that is, if we have confident expectation... 
for what we do not see. That is understanding inheritance, our confident expectation that we will spend eternity with the Father and there will be a judgment seat of Christ. If we have a confident expectation for what we do not see, with perseverance, that is persistent endurance, hupomones, we wait eagerly for it. That is our motivation. That is what advances us in the spiritual life. So there we see, in a nutshell, a very basic survey of Romans 6-8, through 8, the principles of advancing to spiritual maturity. Now, before we close in prayer, I have to give you a little instruction. You are not to get up and leave when we say amen. We have a little treat tonight. My good friend, Gene Brown, is here. Gene uh, just returned from a trip to Cuba with, G- uh, with uh, Jody Brown, who many of you know. And uh, so he's going to take about five or ten minutes to give us a little report on Cuba. He has some fascinating things to say about the Cuban perspective on Elian Gonzalez and what was going on down there. And you don't want to miss that unless you are really happy with the deception of American news media. Uh, he also has some fascinating things to say about the state of Christianity in Cuba. So he'll give us about a five or ten minute report, and that will be followed by a congregational meeting. Those of you who are not members, you can quietly slip out so that the members can, can deal with the issue on the uh, amendment to the Constitution, or you can sit here and just watch to see how things uh, function. So let's close in prayer, and then Gene will come up. Father, we do thank you for... Uh, the fact that you have given us clear descriptions of why we are to be motivated, what motivates us, and how we are to grow and advance in the spiritual life. We pray that we would be challenged by these things, challenged by our future inheritance, the hope, the confident expectation that we have because we know that we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ and that ultimately we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. It's a tremendous pleasure to meet you folks. Uh, I didn't know who you were and you didn't know who I was, but I knew you were praying for me and uh, that meant an awful lot while I was in Cuba. I was in China the year before. In China, there's a lot to be afraid of, but there is a confidence that you know what's wrong and what's right in China. You have no question in your mind, if you do certain things, you will get in trouble in China. Cuba's not that way. In Cuba, you never know from one minute to the next what they may or may not do to you. When you're teaching a Bible class in Cuba, they may come in, pick you up, take you to the airport, make you buy a ticket, and leave. Now, they're not going to let you use the ticket that you were going to use to get out of there to leave with. They'll make you buy a new one. Or, they may pick up everybody with you and teach you how to cut sugar cane for the next six months and all the people that were listening with you. Or they may leave you alone. So you're, you're, you're kind of like uh, one of these experiments in college where they shock you with electricity or something like that and you never know for real why they're doing it. And that's the way they keep their people in control. Now, if you're a tourist, if you're just a tourist, you get off the airplane, you got a lot of money, you rent a car and go to one of those really fine hotels that they're just building like crazy on some of the beaches down there, which the Cubans can't go to. And uh, you pick up a prostitute and some drugs and things like that and drink a lot of rum. The Cuban government loves you because you're just spending money like crazy, and that's what they want. But they have those areas sealed off from the Cubans. <clears throat> In fact, you could go down there right now and buy a condominium on the ocean for probably about $80,000. You'd get title to it. Cubans can't do that. But you walk away from that beach 
you start teaching the Bible in uh, what they call house churches or people's homes or in garages or old buildings or something like that, and you're immediately in trouble with the government. And that's the way fascist governments always work. They pass laws so that whatever you do is against the law. And that's just the way it works in Cuba. Now, he mentioned uh, Elion, and I'm going to give you that right at first because that's kind of an interesting thing. In Cuba, you've got all kinds of religions, just like you do anywhere else in the world. And one of them is Santa Rita. I can't, uh, there's a Spanish-speaking woman here in class. Where is your wife? Santa, how do you pronounce that? Santaria. Santaria is a combination of Catholicism and voodoo. And if that isn't a wild combination, you haven't lived. Uh, it's a combination of priestly attire and chicken killing. Uh, Castro has always had a Santera with him ever since he's been in power. He goes to his spirit guide. He also has a spiritualist. He's got two of these quacks that he's kept with him all of his life. Now, the woman that had been with him for at least 36 years blew her brains out about four or five years ago. He got him a new one. Now, in Santa Rita, or whatever it is, the uh, main doctrine is that there is a father and there is a son, just like in Christianity. And everybody knew that Castro was the father, but nobody knew who the son was. And then this little boy comes up out of the water and he's saved and he's on the beach and he's in Miami. And that's a problem. Because the father and the son are supposed to be in the same country. So if the son is not with the father, that may mean that we're going to replace the father and get a new father. So Castro was really anxious to get that kid back to Cuba because he could see himself being replaced or dying. Of course, he has cancer, so the thought of death is facing him every day. So what you run into there is... African voodooism and Western civilization and communism and all these nice little things all tied together in one big package. And that's what you're looking at in Cuba. Now, there are thousands of Christians in Cuba. But the big problem, as in the United States, the Christians in Cuba have absolutely no knowledge of the Word of God. The same problem that we have right here. The Cubans love a good joke. They like to sing. They, they really are fun people to be with. They make about $8 a month. And yet, everywhere you go, they feed you all you can eat. Beans and rice and yucca, a yucca. It's a, you know, you guys eat tapioca? You guys don't, you're, I thought all Yankees ate tapioca. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm in the wrong place. It, it, it's kind of like southern rice, only you, it's little white pearly things that you guys cook up here and make into desserts. Tapioca, right? Okay. Anyway, down there they don't eat the tapioca. They eat the root they make it from, and it's called yuca or cassava. And I like it. So we had lots of meals of black beans and rice and cassava, and I got to then talk about Christ. So, I mean, I had a wonderful trip. In fact, you guys are really being blessed by having a pastor teacher who knows the original language, wants to teach the Word, and all that kind of stuff. So... He is also being blessed by he's learning how to live out in the country. This guy has never lived in anything but a big city. And I have really enjoyed these last three days watching him suffer, you know? 
So, you see, my prayer is that some of these days when things cool off in Cuba and you guys are really spiritual giants, that I take him down to Cuba and he can really learn how to live without running water, air conditioning, and all that kind of stuff while he's teaching the Word in the seminary that's there in Havana. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? See, God's got a sense of humor. He gives you the Word and He gives him the training. Isn't that neat? Okay. Um, I've got to throw a couple of things. He said only five minutes, and I'm sorry. I've got, I just can't do it in five minutes. Do you understand? I'm from Texas, and I'm a farmer. And when a farmer gets a chance to talk, boy, you know, you almost have to turn the bull loose to get him out of there. So listen. When I was in China last year, George Wang, who's a very strong uh, academic teacher in China, traveled with me for three weeks. George said to me, Gene, I was jumping him about the Chinese stealing all of our information and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Gene, Gene, he said, listen to me. He said, we in China do not even worry about the United States. And he says, I'll tell you why. I said, I'd like to hear the reason for that. He said, the reason is, he says, uh, you're the first American I've ever met who knows anything about your history. He said, in fact, you're the first one I've ever met that's been able to teach me anything about American history. He said, we have a saying in China. He says that people who do not know their past, people who do not know their customs, people who do not know their foundation are only interested in the present. And if you're only interested in the present, you do not have a future. And he said, you Americans have no interest in your past. You're only interested in the present, and you don't have a future. Now, Christianity in the United States today is so involved in emotionalism and feeling good and things like that, that if we don't get back to the foundation and the roots, which he was teaching so clearly tonight, we may find the time when we are taking boats to Cuba to escape the persecution that's on this side of the water because nothing remains the same. Do you follow me on what I just said? We have got to, as Christians and believers, really take serious knowing what our foundation is, knowing what our roots are, so that when we go to places like Cuba, we have something to say. We have to be prepared to be the witnesses that God has called us to be. Now, that is what my experience in Cuba was, and I'm going to leave this with you. Do you remember when Moses was out in the desert there, and he looked over and he saw a bush that was just burning like crazy? <clears throat> remember the story? He surely has taught you that. Now, I take it for granted, you people up here from the north and these Moses stories, you know, we sing about that down south. But anyway, <clears throat> if Moses had walked over, <clears throat> taken his arm, and pushed it into that bush, he would have burned that arm right to the shoulder blade. That was the hottest fire in the universe right then. That was God himself in that bush. But that bush didn't even get a scorched leaf. Now, you know what that message is? That is, any old bush will do. That means everyone sitting in this room tonight can be a bush for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of you sitting here tonight. Any old bush will do. The danger is, and this is what's going on in Christianity today, we take our bush and we fill it with gasoline 
And we set it on fire because we want to be a flame for the Lord. And we turn to ashes. You follow me on that? If we do the work, we turn to ashes. If God is the fire in the bush, hey, all we got to do is sit there and glow. All we've got to do is know the Word He's teaching and take it into the world that we're living in and God can use any old bush. So just remember that. Even when you're walking along and you see a bush, remember, God can take any bush in the universe and He can speak through it to anyone. And that's us. And that was why my trip to Cuba was so exciting because I can't tell you all about it. But So next time I'm up here, we'll, I'll let Him give me a little more time. But... Uh, Keep that in your mind. We're nothing but the bush. The fire is the Word of God that He puts into us and it goes out into the world. You follow me on that? It's been a lot of fun talking to you.